0: Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co host, Rob Lamorges. Hello, everybody. This is Evil. This is the second episode in our Get Me Another Halloween series, where we'll be discussing the wave of slasher films that followed the success of Halloween. Last week, we discussed John Carpenter's original film, as well as two of the earliest attempts to ride the wave of its creative and commercial success. This week, we'll be talking about two more early slasher films. The first of these is arguably the most influential film in the subgenre after Halloween. That's right. Join us for a trip out to Camp Crystal Lake on Friday the 13th.
1: I had this dream. I'm in a thunderstorm. And it's raining really hard. It sounds like pebbles when it hits the ground. I try to block out the sound with my hands, only it doesn't work. It just keeps getting louder and louder. And the rain turns to blood. It's just
0: a dream. We ain't going to stand for no weirdness out here.
1: Hello? Help me!
0: Did you know that a young boy drowned here? Help me! His name was Jason, and today is his birthday. Help me! This
1: place is cursed. You're doomed if you stay here.
0: Help. Help me. In a sense, Rob, I think Friday the 13th is a movie that perfectly captures the get-me-another concept. Like, this film was explicitly made to capitalize on the success of Halloween. According to writer Victor Miller, producer-director Sean Cunningham actually said to him, Halloween's making a lot of money, let's rip it off. But whatever the original impetus, Friday the 13th turned out to be a pretty great movie in its own right. Yes, Chris. I uh,
1: And I'm going to be up front with everybody... Uh, I have a very unpopular opinion, even amongst Friday fans. The original 1980 Friday the 13th is the best film in the franchise.
0: I I do not agree with that assessment.
1: I, I think most people do not agree with that assessment, but I'm here. I will, I will claw and scratch and itch, even Cunningham in his interviews. And it pains me when he talks about the first movie that he is very, um, you know, one could say humble about it. And thinks that a lot of the what came in the in the franchise later were were bigger and better, and I guess it was bigger. But uh, I there are things about this first movie that I absolutely love, and we'll we'll
0: dive into it as we talk. Well, it's interesting because I, I I think just to, to pick up on that for a second because I, I don't think it's the best movie in the series. That said, I like it a lot. Uh, I think it's a really good movie, and and it's one of the key differences I think between Halloween. And Friday the 13th, um, I think a large amount of the influence of Friday the 13th comes not only from this film, but the subsequent sequels. Um, Whereas with Halloween, if they had never made a sequel to Halloween, it would still be one of the most influential horror movies ever made. Um, To me, Friday the 13th is more like James Bond in that regard, where like Dr. No. You know, what Dr. No did with that series, you know, it, it, it set the formula, but subsequent movies added to it and refined it. That's what I feel about Friday is that that you get a little bit more added with each one, especially for the second, third, or fourth movie. Uh, but that said, I really like the first movie. I hadn't watched it in a while, and I rewatched it for this. And I, I really, it was really good. It's a really good movie in and of itself. But I'm not sure it would have had the same influence if you hadn't followed it with sequels. I agree with everything you just said.
1: Uh, it is not the most influential Friday movie. Uh, without the sequels, it probably it probably would be like a Terror Train or a Prom Night, as opposed to a Friday the Thirteenth. That's what I was thinking.
0: Yes, in, in the in the the league of My Bloody Valentine or The Prowler, like it, it's it's a really good entry in this type of film.
1: Yeah, but what I love about it. Is that some of the things that it takes from Halloween? I think it it goes even further with sure, uh, and that to me is the that seventies uh, quasi documentary kind of Robert Altman feel to hanging out with the kids, the teenagers, yes. which Halloween one hundred percent had. Uh, you can say that that also stretched back to Black Christmas. It's not mm-hmm. something that just got invented in the later era, but this. And I think when I was younger, this very element of Friday the 13th was one of the things that turned me off and made it one of my least favorites in the franchise. Interesting. Is that to me, it felt like a lot of boring stuff, right? When I was a kid kid myself. Right. Uh, but now it really is. It's it, it's a Richard Linklater hangout movie with a body count. And there's just something about me in my middle age that absolutely loves that.
0: Um, i i i do agree i and i i i really like this film um i think it's you know it's it, 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 and i liked it m- even more i think the, the most rewatching. it you know it's just it, it was i always liked it but i i really appreciated it more this time so maybe i'm maybe i'm i'm just a little bit behind you in terms of my growing up i'm not quite as i haven't quite reached that level of maturity yet Friday the 13th was written by Victor Miller and produced and directed by Sean Cunningham, who had previously produced The Last House on the Left in 1971. The film was originally going to be titled A Long Night at Camp Blood, but the success of Halloween prompted Cunningham to change it to the date-centric Friday the 13th. Cunningham famously took out an ad in Variety with the Friday the 13th title before the script was even finished and proclaimed it to be the most terrifying movie ever made. Uh, It stars Adrian King, Harry Crosby, Janine Taylor, Lori Bartram, Kevin Bacon, and Betsy Palmer. Uh, And the film was shot in Western New Jersey in the summer of 1979, which already puts it ahead of He Knows You're Alone because it was shot in New Jersey and not Staten Island. Yes. I
1: love, love the New Jersey setting in this film. Um, That just the woods... Um, that small town that they get to when before before they
0: actually get to uh, the camp blood. I believe it's um, Blairstown, New Jersey. It's in the far western part of New Jersey.
1: Yeah, and on that uh, that shout factory Blu-ray set, you do get a uh, a a vision of that town now. And I think one of the locations is now like a Friday memorabilia store. And I do, actually did watch that
0: special feature this week. And, yeah. uh, and yes, and, and, and it's, it was great. Cause it was all, it's interesting. The, uh, Friday, the Friday one and two were both shot in the Northeast uh, with the third film. The series moved out to California, but all the stuff for the first ride was shot in New Jersey where all the stuff for Friday two was shot in Connecticut. Friday the 13th was a turning point in terms of depicting more graphic violence and elaborate kills. Uh, This was made possible in large part because of Tom Savini's innovative makeup and effects. And while it was produced independently, a bidding war emerged for the distribution rights to the film, with Warner Brothers, United Artists, and Paramount all trying to avoid making the same mistake twice after passing on Halloween. Paramount ultimately won U.S. distribution rights while Warner Brothers distributed overseas. Uh, I also want to mention the iconic Friday the 13th score composed by Harry Manfredini, um, which is just amazing. It's, it's the sort of thing where, like, a lot of aspects of this movie are not quite as good as Halloween, but pretty darn close. And the score is kind of per- perfectly representative of that.
1: Yeah, I mean looking at Savini, looking at Manfredini, right? They give you something different than what Halloween had. Mm -hmm. But in general, both of these films, Halloween and Friday the 13th had, uh, you know, and again, this is, as you say, less of a clockwork, professional craftsman crafted film, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot looser. I actually think it fits, it fits the setting and the story and what they were going for, frankly, I think. But, in both halloween and here uh in different departments though you have people who were early on in their careers who had great who went on to great careers uh Absolutely. I, you know uh savini with special effects i think is very much you could say <clears throat> uh in the league of getting dean kundi early in his career yeah. to be your cinematographer right and yeah. then manfredini's music is as iconic As Carpenter's score. You don't have a director comp. But what I love about the Friday the 13th score, and this again just goes to the influences going over time and how uh, that's not always a bad thing. In my order of of chronological order, the best Bernard Herrmann scores that he did not write are (laughs) Jaws. Yep. Friday the 13th and then yes. reanimator uh, reanimator would be the third. And absolutely like they show their influences and, and Friday the 13th also shows its influences from John Williams jaw score, but it, it really isn't the same. It is its own thing. And on, again, on the, if you ever get a chance on YouTube or disc extras, listening to Harry Manfredini talk about the score and like how he thinks of music is just a joy. Uh, yeah. This is a guy who, anyway, he just gives so much thought, and I love his work. And
0: that. That's well, apparently, the, in in the first Friday, music is only present when the killer is present. That is what Manfredini has said, and I haven't I haven't gone back to try. I didn't was it tracking that when I was well, you know watching it? I'm not sure that's 100 percent true. It is
1: not 100 percent true. Yeah, and I'm I can a tell you, I can tell you exactly when it's wrong and why it's wrong please um when uh like what Jack and Marcy are in the truck with is it maybe Ned and oh I yeah the other they're they're driving to Camp Crystal Lake that first time they're yes. going down that old country road they're hooting and hollering and you've got some Jerry Reed esque banjo <laughs> music. You cannot escape Smokey and the Bandit, Chris, you
0: in 1980s you, you, America. In late 70s, early 80s, you cannot escape the influence of Smokey and the Bandit. We've said it before, and it is absolutely true. I also wanted to point out, in that scene, I noticed something I never noticed for the first... I, I noticed something I'd never noticed before. Um, on the dashboard of that truck is a paperback copy of The Godfather by Mario Puzo, which, of course... The movie of The Godfather was produced by Paramount, who would eventually pick up this film for distribution. Although they wouldn't have done that by the time, this, because it was it was made independently and then sold. So it's just sort of serendipity that The Godfather is sitting on the dashboard mm. of the truck when they are uh, when they are driving to the camp for the first time.
1: I, I also, with that banjo music, uh, there's a, the Sean Cunningham connection, right? Because. Last House on the Left has yes. a lot of inappropriate bumbling cops with banjo music action going on. And I it's feel so that weird. he felt uh, the need to have a little country banjo in this one,
0: maybe. I'm not sure. Absolutely. For those who don't already know, Friday the 13th tells the story of a group of camp counselors who, while preparing to reopen a long-shuttered summer camp, are hunted by an unknown killer who will stop at nothing to prevent the camp from reopening. Um, and, and I should say, because I always forget until the last minute, we are going to talk about spoilers. This is the first movie in our Get Me Another Halloween series which has been been focused on a mystery where it is it is a who done it. Um, you know the, the films that we talked about in episode one, all of them, you knew who the killer was from fairly early. It wasn't about the mystery of the killer's identity. Here, uh, and in, and both of the movies we'll talk about today have have that in kind of different ways. Uh here the killer's identity is sort of a, a central thing and we are going to talk about it. That said, if you haven't seen Friday the 13th before now, I I'd honestly be surprised if you're listening to this podcast to begin with, but if you haven't, uh you know, you know, pause it and go go check it out cuz it is a terrific movie. Um and you know, it's 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 a really good movie for the type of movie that it is. It's really good. Um Right from the beginning of Friday the Thirteenth, I think let's talk about some of the differences between it and Halloween because I think it's I think it's it's interesting and instructive. Uh, both of them feature young people who become the target of a knife wielding killer. Uh, I'll say one difference is right from the beginning: the idea of sex and promiscuity being punished is more central here than in Halloween. We talked about it last week, or we didn't really think that was part of Halloween, although it's become part of sort of the lore of Halloween. But in reality, uh, I don't think it's true. Here it's the case. The opening sequence set in 1958 shows two counselors at Camp Crystal Lake who are murdered as they are enjoying some one-on-one personal time. And that is central. The, 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 the
1: sex actually is central to the killer's motive yes. and it's not, it's actually, it's not a puritanical motive though, because of what happened in the past, which we'll get to, but there is a specific reason why counselors having sex triggers the killer. And it's not, it's not puritanical. Right. Um, it just like the, any of the drinking or weed smoking in this film, sometimes characters do it and the killer doesn't get them. Sometimes it they, the killer does get them. Uh, and it really feels like they are showing kids doing what kids would do if they were counselors getting a camp ready. They'd probably have some Brewski's and a little grass. It's
0: 1980. And and honestly, there's not that many people who are having sex. Like the the one the one couple who are killed after having sex are Jack and Marcy, who seem to be uh, from all intents in a committed relationship. It's not like, oh hey, you got a ton of people hooking up throughout the camp. I mean, you know, it was kind of day one. So who knows what might've happened later that summer, but Jack and Marcy are a couple when they arrive.
1: Yeah. And that they're a perfect illustration of the, uh, that seventies character feel that I love, which in part is, look, this is another great thing. The East coast regional stuff had going for it at this time is they had access to a lot of New York theater actors. And so you, I have said this before for other movies, but you wind up with a cat, uh, for being an independent, you know, low-budget film uh, outside of Hollywood, this is where you would want to be because you get great actors.
0: Well, it was how uh, you know a lot of New York theater actors paid the bills with low-budget films and soap operas because at the time you had a lot of soap operas shot in New York. That was, you know, that was kind of their way to 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 put uh, food on the table in between, you know, obviously theatrical gigs which didn't necessarily pay as much.
1: Yeah, and with uh, and so you get those performances with Jack and Marcy, which sell it, but. They're written, it, it is a very sweet relationship. Like these yeah. two, they're not just a couple. They're they're in love. And yeah. one of my favorite little moments, uh, which is I think directly before Ned gets killed, <laughs> which we'll. Get, <laughs> I want to talk Ned in a moment. But uh, <laughs> they have that moment where they're kind of like going over a log to kind of cross a little part of water, right? Jack mm-hmm. and Marcy are walking and they kind of have this little like almost like little like uh dance as they're going across where they're kind of like goofing around with each other and it's just so like naive and sweet it's the kind of thing that two young people in love do um and it's yeah. not and it's it's taken from a long shot fairly far away so it's not like they're uh I just think like the directing choice there to to let them those characters have that moment um and you know look he's working probably with a budget that does not allow him to get you know eight shots of coverage for that as well sure. but it's still like i just think it's a very effective choice and and i love their relationship
0: uh that, yeah absolutely um i also think another interesting aspect of this movie is i think in the opening sequence we st- you know there's the, the opening sequence is set in 1958 and then we jump ahead to the present day um And we start the story by introducing Annie, who is hitchhiking her way to Camp Crystal Lake to serve as the camp's cook. But unlike Halloween, where we're introduced very early to Laurie Strode, and it's clear that she's our protagonist, Annie is not our main character, the so-called final girl, as it's come to be known. In fact, Annie is actually the first person to be killed after the opening prologue. So right off the bat, the film is trying to keep you off balance over who's going to make it through this night alive and who isn't. Yeah, it's
1: got that that psycho quality of uh, trying to set up the person you think you're going to be following. And then uh, oh, double spoiler, by the way, on that for Psycho. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, right. yeah. I I uh, There's so many great lines with Annie, though, for the short amount of time. I, I, like I kind of love it. Like,
0: honestly, I I, I kind of still have a little bit of a crush on Annie. She's uh, she's she's great she's an American original Chris
1: um, <laughs> um, but I love I love her and, and the interactions with crazy Ralph and yep. uh, and her in the diner um, yep. it's it, it, it's almost like the and look having a, a warning early in a horror movie not uncommon what I loved about this is, in that diner, it's it's almost reminiscent of, like, you're at the pub in the werewolf movie in England. Yes. And they're like, stick to the pad, yes. stay off the moors, baby. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I just, I don't know. It's like a little local color, too. I get a feel for the town.
0: Yeah, and then she gets driven, you know, at least partway to the camp by uh, by by one of the truckers who, who gives the opportunity for a little bit of backstory on what had befallen uh, Camp Crystal Lake. Honestly, I think all of the counselors in, in in this movie, with the exception maybe of Ned, are <laughs> relatively <laughs> likable. Uh, but Ned's interesting because Ned is the model for subsequent practical Joker characters in the series, most notably yeah. Shelly in Friday the 13th Part 3. Yeah. Like, Ned's the prototype.
1: Ned walked so Shelly could run. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, but Ned's not that... <sighs> Ned is not that much of a jerko. He, no, uh, although, except for almost murdering Brenda on the, the archery. F- yeah.
0: That, yeah. That's, not, that's not proper archery safety practice. And I think our audience should should be aware of that right off the bat. There, there is some very they play fast and loose with the arrows. And I don't think that's appropriate. Yeah,
1: and but it is also foreshadowing uh it is in the indeed. movie. Because we're gonna see. That scene takes place in broad daylight, uh, but we're going to see that archery location uh, later in the film, uh, not in broad daylight, uh, and through a lot of hard rain. There's so much uh, rain in this movie.
0: It's so. Much, I they, love they,
1: the they, rain.
0: Oh, they ought to sell like uh, an ASMR rain sound program from the the rain from Friday the Thirteenth because it's so it's. It's fantastic. You had mentioned, you know, like the werewolf movie and sort of like the 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 um, you know, when the you know, the the protagonist goes into a pub and gets bored, stick to the paths. And and I think that also leads into one of the other key distinctions between Halloween and Friday the 13th is that in Halloween the evil comes to you. Whereas in Friday the 13th you have to go to the place where evil dwells. And that is a kind of throwback, I think, to, you know, again, the universal horror uh, movies and 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 even films later, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where, you know, you have to go to the place where evil lives. And it becomes more pronounced as the series progresses.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's in the middle of nowhere, even though these people live in this town. But this is this is not the middle of your suburban Chicago uh you know, it is area. not
0: the New Jersey I it's not the the very suburban New Jersey that I grew up in it is it's almost Pennsylvania. Uh
1: and it is um you know the one another thing from Halloween that is uh you know it they both open on the flashback kill, right? Yep. Uh in this one though you don't know who did it. Uh right. but then also in Friday the 13th Uh, You have the, the lore no one knows that there was a killer who necessarily did this, but they do know that people have died at that camp through various incidents, including like a fire, but the lore is well known in the community in Halloween. No one knows or remembers or believes other than Loomis. Uh, And so that's a, that's another big difference between these just, and while that sounds like just a story point. I think there is uh, a a difference here in that in Halloween, you know exactly who the killer is. So you kind of need your characters to have no idea that there's even danger. Now in Friday the 13th, the characters are told that there's danger, but they don't believe it until it's too late. Right. But the community at large, because they're coming in as outsiders they cannot believe Crazy Ralph. They cannot believe the truck driver. They can, you know, to them, it's just, you know, oh, it's, tall it's, tales. They're, they're
0: crazy locals, yeah. And it's interesting, because this, this movie, unlike all three of the movies last week, Halloween, When a Stranger Calls, and He Knows You're Alone, all of them have, well, obviously Halloween has Loomis, but the other two movies had Loomis-type characters. Um, Friday the 13th does not have a Loomis-type character, but what it does have is perhaps the archetypal harbinger of doom character in Crazy Ralph, who goes around warning everyone that Crystal Lake has a death curse, you know, and I'm a mess, you know, he's just, uh, he's he's crazy and he's warning everybody. Um, and in some ways he's a suspect himself, although he, you know, and that's, uh, he's obviously not the killer, we'll get into that. But um, it, w- one thing I picked up this time on this viewing it's mentioned by the officer who comes like to the camp. Crazy Ralph has a wife. I I wrote that down too. Those have to be some fun dinner conversations with Crazy Ralph and his wife. Wow. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's
1: why Crazy Ralph was in the pantry at the camp, just waiting for <laughs> someone to open the door. Yeah, was he was he trying to borrow a cup of sugar for the misses, and then forgot how doors
0: worked? Because I think that might be a more reasonable explanation. <laughs> I, I can't um one other character oh by one of the from the kids and crazy one other character who I think is great is the cop who comes to the camp and gives the kids a bit of a hard time. I think the it's a small bit, but I think the actor who plays that role is brilliant. Because he's not playing a tough cop. He's playing a guy trying to play at being a tough cop. And, and the line on that is very fine, but very distinct. And he he does a great job with it. We ain't going to stand for no weirdness out here, Chris. <laughs> That's right. he, he ain't going to stand for it. Friday the 13th is, as I've said, the first film we've covered in the series so far where the killer's identity is is a mystery and we're going to see more of those mystery different films in the weeks to come. Now, just as a warning, if you've never one more time, if you've never seen Friday the 13th, go and check it out because it's hard to really discuss the movie fully without talking about the killer's identity and their motives. So, last chance. Though if you haven't seen Friday the 13th, but you have
1: seen the first scream movie, you've already been spoiled and you can <laughs> walk,
0: you can continue to listen. <laughs> That, yes. that is true. Uh, the film sets up a number of possible suspects for who the killer might be. So much that I think in Friday 13th could be called Red Herrings the movie, because this movie is replete with red herrings. First and foremost is Steve Christie. The owner of the camp, whose family's owned it for generations. He is literally introduced holding an axe. Now, that's because he's chopping a tree stump, but he gives off a very creepy vibe, especially in with Alice, one of the counselors who he clearly has had some kind of relationship with. Yeah, I
1: I think part of the creepy vibe is those jean shorts. But yeah, well, you know, it was it
0: it was was the time, man.
1: Yeah, I know. But that that scene with him and Alice early. I will look and I'm dying on this hill, so I'm just going to (laughs) keep keep beating the dead horse, Chris. (laughs) That scene is, look, it's not, again, uh, that scene is a good example of characterization that this movie has that I think it is never given credit for. Yeah. Uh, so they're talking about the camp, Steve and Alice. She's doing some work. He's talking about work a little bit. And then it comes out, uh, you know, she's got her little, her pick, her drawing that she's made and he's looking at it. And he says, is that what I really look like? And she says, it's how you looked like it last night. Yeah. And, and then they go on and they go off, but what a wonderful look, it's not subtle, but what a wonderful way to reveal these two have a relationship. Yeah. Uh, and then, it, and it goes on from there. Um, but that's, that's like a really nice little, little piece in there um, rather than just, you know, in other movies, it might be like he tries to pull her in and like hug and yeah. kiss her, and she's like, "No, we're on a break," and, <laughs> um, which you would probably see in a lot of things. Of, yes, uh, this, at
0: this budget uh, level, some uh, of these so- movies will become less subtle the further we go into this series. Um, I, uh, but there are a few things that they intentionally like. They they clearly the film wants you to think that Steve Christie is the killer, and he has. They have. Christie leave the camp, like about halfway through the movie. You know he has the 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 opportunity. Uh, he drives the same type of jeep that the killer drives, and that's again a red herring. Um, the thing working against Steve Christie is what's the motive? Like if he sunk so much money into the camp, why would he kill everybody? Unless you know he's just deranged. There, the
1: moment when you know Steve is not the killer, it's well before you see the actual killer. Steve is in town. Yep. He's paying for his meal. The meal is two dollars and twenty-five cents. He leaves three dollars and says, keep the change. That is a 75 cent tip on a 225 meal in 1980. That is over 30%. This is not a man who's gonna kill people, not the killer. No, I agree.
0: Also, I will say what what undercuts his position as suspect number one is the fact that he's the first person we see killed in the trailer. (laughs) Yeah. Whoever cut the trailer was clearly not trying to keep that illusion of, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, but you have other suspects too. Crazy Ralph is a suspect. Like he could, you know, like it clearly wants to think any of the local townsfolk that we see at the beginning. And it's what I find so interesting about Friday the Thirteenth is it turns out the killer is none of those people. Yeah, so we'll we'll get into the who, but like one by one, we see the counselors are hunted down. Ned is lured into a cottage and we later see his body on top of a bunk bed. Jack is famously killed by an arrow through the throat while laying in bed. By the way, how long was the killer under that bed?
1: Uh, A very long time. And also, yeah, because dead Ned is on the top bunk, which. Yes. I I know they probably would have seen. I didn't care, but I did. I did pause it. They did bother to put a giant duffel bag on the other side of dead Ned. So they're trying to sell the fact that maybe they wouldn't have seen. But that, it's not like that top bunk is seven feet in the air. <laughs> I think you would have still seen over the duffel bag. But uh, uh, You
0: later have Marcy who gets an axe to the face in the bathroom. Brenda is lured to the archery range. or Her death actually happens off screen like Ned's. And then finally, Bill is killed while checking the generator, leaving only the killer and Alice. Um, and I think it's what, interesting. One clue that, is that the killer looks normal enough that Annie would be willing to get into the car with them. Like and, and Steve Christie greets the killer with familiarity before he himself is killed. But what makes it so interesting to me is that it's impossible to solve because you never meet the killer before the reveal. The killer is, of course, for those... God, I hope we've given you enough spoiler warnings. I think we have. but So if you're still with us, the killer is, of course, Pamela Voorhees, whose son Jason drowned in 1957 due to the carelessness of a couple of horny camp counselors. Yeah, they were getting it on instead of
1: watching the pond or the lake... Oh, not pond. Lake. It's Crystal Lake, Rob. Uh, (laughs) I... Sometimes, sometimes you you start slipping in your uh, middle age here, but it's, uh, they should have been watching the lake. They weren't. And this is where the obsession with sex is born out of an actual story point in the movie. It's not
0: a, uh, it's not puritanical. It's not. Oh, that's it's, it's that you were, were shirking your responsibilities and my son died as a consequence.
1: It's easy to overlook this from our time period but I just have to call out in 1980 to have had the killer not only be a woman but one who yeah. was killing due to a mother's love. Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, and and a, a giant twist and very very unsettling. Um, that is not something that you'd seen a lot of at that time period. Uh, I know I'm sure there are, you know, female killers in movies and I, look, you know, you've got a lot of vampires and things that will fit that. bill. But to have an ordinary psychotically broken woman doing this, uh, I is, was super unique and something that opened up a door, I think, uh, not for most of the movies that followed immediately in its wake, but it opened up a door long-term.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that Pamela Voorhees is basically the inverse of Norman Bates from from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Whereas Norman had a dissociative personality disorder that led him to speak in his mother's voice and kill as her, Pamela speaks in the voice of her son, or at least what she imagines her son to be, uh, and you know saying "killer mommy, killer, get her mommy, get her." Uh, honestly, this movie would not work without the incredible performance of Betsy Palmer as Pamela Voorhees. This this movie could have easily fallen apart in the third act, but she is absolutely convincing and terrifying and pitiable. And in lesser hands, I think this just wouldn't have worked. And I'm thinking about like the, the end of the third act of He Knows You're Alone, where the killer's just somehow comes across as kind of goofy. Betsy Palmer's never goofy. She's so Stone cold, crazy, and absolutely terrifying, but never, ever goofy. Um, she's a force of nature in
1: this movie. And there's when she first meets Alice, what I love is that at the beginning of it, and look, at this point in the horror movie, you as the audience already know, oh, this is this is gonna be bad news, right? Right. But Alice doesn't. And the right. way that it's played is that Mrs. Mrs. Voorhees in the beginning is going through that she's shocked by what she sees and she starts talking about going to the cops together and it really is playing like this was Mrs. Voorhees plan. It it could end now. The camp is not going to open up and so you call the cops and do it. But as she starts play acting more at this, this is where the, the crazy comes in.
0: Oh my lord. So young so pretty. Oh, what monster could have done this? Bill's out there. Oh, God, this place. Steve should never have opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here, I was the cook. Jason should have been watched every minute. He was... He wasn't a very good swimmer. We can go now, dear. I think we should wait for Mr. Christie. <laughs> That's not necessary. I don't understand. I am Jason. I am. You see, Jason was my son. And today is his birthday. Where's Mr. Christie? Oh, I couldn't let them open this place again, could I? Not after what happened. Oh, my sweet, innocent Jason. My only child. You let him drown. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. Look what you did to him.
1: And then she starts telling the story about Jason. And then it's just, it spirals out of control in her own mind. She gets swept away with the story to the point where, oh oh no, now I've said too much. I have to kill her too. Yeah. But I don't even think it's like a rational I've said too much. It's I've said so much that I am now an enraged killer. Like I can't even right. let one person out alive. I have to kill them all. Um, yeah. And it, it is it's a fantastic bit of performance. I know Betsy Palmer was not always a fan of this movie and herself in this movie. But I uh, and I think she did come around later, but she's fantastic in this thing.
0: Oh, uh, I, I yeah, Absolutely um she she the movie hangs on her because if that if that performance had failed the movie doesn't work it needed to work and she absolutely hit a home run uh I, honestly there, there's a scene you know once alice knows that oh she's in danger that that this this woman is is the killer that one of my favorite moments and it is similar to a moment in halloween is when alice is hiding in the pantry and it is absolutely one of the most suspenseful moments. I just like every time when that doorknob starts to turn, it's perfectly framed with the way with the doorknob behind her head and kind of a behind and above. And it just starts to turn and you don't really hear it. It's so good. Uh the, the, the whole end sequence of this movie is so good. Um
1: One of my yeah. favorite things about that end run where Alice is being stalked by Mrs. Voorhees for, whatever it is. I don't know if it's eight minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. Um, There, there are two parts that again, just up, Look, I'm calling out Cunningham's direction here. Visually. Maybe it was the DP who knows, but at the beginning of the movie in that 1958 sequence, you're in the killer's POV as you're scanning around. And particularly after the, 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 the male counselor is already murdered and you right. have the female counselor. Uh, she's like, no, no, no. and the camera's following her and like she's trying to like throw stuff ineffectually at the camera. Yeah. That exact thing is replicated with Alice. It's not like in the same location, but right. that exact style and and she's like pretty much the same distance from camera all of that. So they've they're yeah. recreating it now um, as, a, as a way to connect it. And they've never done that with any of the other kills, you know in the in the movie in the present day. And additionally, that beginning sequence that I was talking about there ends with the, you start to go to that stuttered slow motion and then into the freeze frame yeah. when that last female counselor is killed in 1958, right? Yep. You don't get slow-mo again until the end of, not the very end, but the uh, the climax of the fight with uh, Mrs. Voorhees, where, where you get the uh, very famous Tom Savini effect
0: yes of the, of the beheading of Pamela Voorhees with a machete on the beach uh, of Crystal Lake and and, and it's, a, it's it's a great moment it's 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 um you're right you're right you don't get the slow mo again until that moment and it's it's reverse you have the horror the look on 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 Betsy Palmer's face as she realizes what's going to happen just before it happens because um, at that moment she's thinking I really should have shaved my knuckle hair because <laughs> they're about to see it all Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, of course, uh, after that happens, uh, Alice pushes, she gets in a canoe and pushes out to the middle of the lake, you know, for some measure of safety. And, of course, we have the final jump scare when Alice wakes up in the canoe on the lake and a decomposing Jason jumps out and pulls her under the water. Uh, This scene would serve as the acorn for the sequels. But when they made it in that first, it was intended as nothing more than a final jump scare, like at the end of Brian De Palma's Carrie, where the hand comes out. You know, like, its it was always intended to be a dream. Jason was never intended to really be under the lake. But then they're looking for somebody, because, you know, Mrs. Voorhees was pretty well dispatched at the end of Friday the 13th, so they're looking for a killer for Friday the 13th Part 2, and said, well, what about Jason? Even though it makes no sense that he, like, if he lived, why wouldn't he go back to his mom, you know? Like, what? Well, I never understood that logic.
1: No, There's no uh... logic. And uh, But that sequence, uh, or that you know, little scene sequence at the end, and they, they talk about this uh, in some of the the extra materials, but they said, you know, Manfredini had to have music that signaled the movie was over and every, right. Alice was safe. And they said in order to really sell it, they had to go for a very long time, which they do. And that piece of music in particular... I love it because it feels like it's its own thing, but it, yeah. it almost, it feels very Italian to me. So it's like, it's like a little goblin. It's like a little Angelo Badlamenti, but before, you know, before. <laughs> um, and you, so you get like a, a kind of like a soft synth that you don't get in the rest yeah. of, of his score for this movie. And it really does feel like, uh, like one of those dream logic sequences in an Italian you know a yeah, absolutely a giallo
0: yeah um yeah if if they had never made another friday the 13th i still think it would be one of the best slasher movies of this era but it was the sequels where i think you had the the degree of influence and i'm going to say this, for those who might be listening and curious as to you know other other Friday the 13th inspired uh, movies. We are indeed planning a get me another Friday the 13th sometime in the future. where We'll explore those slasher movies with a distinctly Friday the 13th influence, which I think comes as much out of the sequels as it, that it does this original. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. We're definitely going to do get me another Friday the 13th for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, this original made a lot of money and, even in the, the films that we're going to be talking about going forward that are definitely more Halloween-influenced, it is yeah. at this point, not not with our next movie, because it was made, you know, same time, but yeah. once you start getting a year or two out from Friday the 13th, even the films that are taking more from Halloween, they are taking from Friday the 13th, and it yeah. infects everything that people think about Halloween retroactively. Yes. You go, if you look at the DNA, you have to go, no, you're, I mean, pretty much anyone, they're making a hybridized version of Halloween and Friday the 13th throughout the 80s slashers. It really is just a question of what's the percentage?
0: Right. Where does it lean? Are you
1: more Halloween or are you more Friday? Yeah. Uh, but I think just about every movie has at least a piece of both.
0: Absolutely. Because they were both, both. Big hits and uh, and both very influential. And that's why it's it's sort of the ultimate get me another movie, because it's 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 a great and influential movie in its own right, despite the fact that it was very distinctly made to capitalize on the success of another movie. But before we get to all of that, we have to move from the backwoods of New Jersey to the mean streets of Los Angeles. Rob, it's a golden and globus joint. This is New Year's Evil. night they were celebrating new year's eve he was out ending their life i'm going to commit murder at midnight (laughs) call me evil every new year's eve the caller came out Now, Rob, I got to tell you, this is one of the few movies in this series that I had not seen before. And I got to tell you, it really weirded me out. And I can't exactly <laughs> put my finger on why. Like, part of it was this sort of time capsule of early 80s punk-infused LA. Part of it's the grimy, gritty, canon-films-esque sensibility. But, and, and, and part of it deals with, and we'll get to this, sort of the motives of the killer, which are both... Uh, both sort of almost sort of the least interesting. It's like it's not as interesting as Pamela Voorhees uh and her 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 grief over her son, but at the same time it feels very immediate and and almost as as you know as as sort of significant today as it did when it was made in 1980. So written by Leonard Neubauer and directed by Emmett Alston, New Year's Evil centers on punk DJ Diane Sullivan also known as Blaze, who is hosting a New Year's Eve music countdown. She receives a phone call from someone who calls himself evil, and he tells her that he's going to kill someone at the stroke of midnight as it hits in every time zone, culminating in midnight Pacific time. As the police try to protect Diane, the killer makes his way across Los Angeles, killing women every hour on the hour. The film stars Roz Kelly, who was Pinky Tuscadero on the original Happy Days, uh, Kip Nevin, Grant Kramer, and Chris Wallace. Uh, first of all, one of the most memorable aspects of the film is that the killer uses his voice modifier to give him a really distinct and creepy sound to his voice. You can call me Eva. Uh, in reality, this is just something that Kip Nevin, the actor did with his voice. like they, they did they were gonna use a a, a voice synthesizer but it didn't really work out the way they wanted it. So he just did that with his voice, which is awesome. Um, oh, I should also mention Diane's son, Derek, who is waiting in the hotel. And while he's clearly not the killer is doing some weird ass shit, like put his mom's pantyhose over a pantyhose over his head. Like it's, it's just some, putting weird... a
1: spike through his own earlobe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's some weird stuff going on there, but it's all part of the trauma of having just booked a part on fake Battlestar
0: Galactica, uh, so, <laughs> which, which he did by himself, not not trading on his mother's name. And, and he makes a point of that. So
1: the, the the first thing that jumps out at me about this is that if you're talking about looking at Halloween as having changed the game, right? Yep. Uh, we've mentioned that a lot of horror is remote and you're cut off from help and yada yada. Halloween brought the horror home to the suburbs. This goes to another level where this is a literal city slasher movie. I mean, you can say technically when a stranger calls had that element too. he and he knows you're alone. It's it seems like smaller, small town, but yeah, they really actually play with it here. And it's funny, literally just setting it in in the city of L.A., yeah. Gives it in some while it's a it's a straight up horror movie. It does, therefore, have some of those kind of thriller elements that you might yeah. get in like uh, I mean, this is later on, but like a jagged edge or something like that. Sure. Right. There, yeah. No, absolutely. It has I mean, at that one point, kind of
0: feel to it. You know, they're, they're they mentioned specifically there at the intersection of Ventura Boulevard and Laurel Canyon. And I'm like, you're messing with the valley now, son. Yeah, and that is uh, that liquor store. If it was ever at, actually at that corner, it's not
1: there now. I can assure you. Uh, so you will not be able to visit the dumpster
0: where Evil <laughs> dropped off, uh, uh, or no, uh, hid.
1: He hid, but that's he I'm hid. Spoiling, yes, he hid. He way, pops out. Um,
0: we, what's interesting about we also spend a great deal of time with the killer. Like most slasher movies, set up a pool of victims, and then the story will stay with them as the killer kind of takes them out one by one. Sometimes it splits them into multiple groups, so one group does not know they are in danger while the other group is facing the danger. We see that in Friday the 13th. Uh, but here, we spend time with the killer as he he moves across Los Angeles and, and takes out each as a victim. We see like how he you know, essentially gains their trust before killing them. Uh, and it's really interesting and different. Yeah, and he um is creepy. You
1: know?
0: Oh yeah,
1: and he's totally you know this totally is totally creepy. Yeah, you know, th- no, this isn't. And in, and in, in the movie in general, it's it, there is an acting style to it, right? This is you're not you know this is not a method movie or anything. But I but I'm not. I also want to stress that the performances are good. It is yeah. just a little more, slightly more stylistic, slightly more heightened. But uh, he both he and, you know, and blaze, uh, yeah. Diane, in the movie, uh, th- as characters, cause they both have to really carry this movie. Um, you know, they're the two pillars, like without, without them, they don't
0: work. Well, it sure as hell ain't the cops who are about as useful as <laughs> my goodness. And that was it, it, the other, it's like, let me, a couple of things. One is that there's this Canon films layer of seediness. To the urban setting of this movie and this is very typical of you know Golan and Globus productions like there's the opening where you're seeing punks cruise down Hollywood Boulevard in the opening sequence and honestly it's one step away from post-apocalyptic like there's one push in early 80s LA will turn into Mad Max like it, it it feels like that and later um to that end, there's a scene where the killer gets waylaid by the motorcycle gang. And that's a, I think we got to talk about that sequence a little bit, where he ends up uh, on his way to kill his third victim, who is apparently a nun. And the killer's dressed as a priest. He accidentally hits a motorcycle with his car, leading to this extended chase sequence with a biker gang. What I found very interesting to me
1: about that, that sequence is unusual because we've spent so much time with evil, that sequence treats it as evil has a goal. Oh no. Is he going to be able to kill? And you have this whole sequence. It's set up in a way like the audience would be rooting for a hero to go ahead. Um, It's not reveling in it or or things like that, that you might get in later, you know, horror movies where it's like, yeah, show me the kill baby. It's not that. It's just story-wise set up like you should be
0: rooting for him. It's very bizarre. It is it's really weird. And and he he the killer is chased into a drive-in movie theater. Possibly the one that Cliff Booth lives behind in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Maybe. Um it is the Van Nuys he, Drive-in. Van Nuys Drive in, absolutely. Uh and there he kills one of the bikers. And then he steals a car with some dude's girlfriend in the backseat. And it's this bizarre sequence that ends with him attempting to kill the random girl in the backseat, but she's able to escape. And it's a really interesting moment where the killer's driving away with the girl in the backseat. And she's visibly terrified, as one would be. And she pleads with the guy not to hurt her and says she doesn't have any money. And the killer, at that moment, he's actually got a switchblade out. He seems to soften and 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 tells her he doesn't want her money. Like the idea that she would think that he's killing for, you know, just robbery purposes. He he totally kind of pulls back. And then she says, quote, we can even get it on if you want to. I won't make any kind of fuss. Killer's resolve hardens again, and he opens up his knife. And it's a really interesting look into the mindset of this guy. Because he's not interested in money, but he has a very disturbing view of women and sexuality, which we'll get to a little bit more soon. Um, Honestly, this movie to me, (laughs) it feels like a Charles Bronson movie that's missing Charles Bronson. Like, it's not far off from 10 to Midnight, which would come out a few years later. And if it had been made then, like, Cannon would have expanded the cop role and had Bronson play it, and it would have been more about him searching for the killer across L.A., um, you know, and, and as opposed to kind of her just waiting around at the hotel. But it felt like a Bronson movie without Bronson. Yeah, and that that's that kind of, like, th- action thriller, like,
1: sex thriller kind of thing. But with this one... Um... Although you're seeing the evil's face the whole time, you do eventually get to a point where he also dons a Michael Myers-esque mask uh, for part of the movie down the line. Uh, So they are they are leaning it into those horror directions and the uh, and the sequences with kills are often done in that style. Uh, Like even that even that we, we were talking about the liquor store earlier. Uh, yeah, where there was uh, there were two friends he'd picked but up he at the two. bar. Right, he'd only wanted one. Uh, so he sends the one he got two. So he sends the one in to get a bottle of champagne at the liquor store, and that's when he kills
0: the friend. Yeah, off, you see you know, him move in, but I think mostly off off camera at that point.
1: Oh no, no, you get to bag,
0: see it's the bag of weed because he's got a bag with weed in it, and he he kills her with the bag of weed, which is bizarre.
1: Well, it's also bizarre because it's like a <laughs> gallon <laughs> trash bag. Filled with, like, very little weed. Very little weed. Um, I guess the dealer, like, was out of the little baggies that day. Um, But in any event, uh, when the friend comes out, though, she's following, like, her friend's, like, shoes and then uh, something else of hers. And going out back and you're, like, she's opening up the the dumpster yeah and then he's got a surprise as evil jumps out and uh and gets her and so that that all is done not so much you know and i know thriller can have moments like that but it it feels more it definitely does
0: yeah it what's interesting is even though we see the killer early and we're with him for most of the movie his identity and motive remain a mystery it's more of a of a why done it than a who done it um you know until we get to uh until we get to the 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 hotel where the killer is revealed to be Diane's husband Richard who's mentioned early enough like he's they mentioned that oh Richard's not coming you know he's in Palm Springs or whatever and oh he's not going to be here you know and it's mentioned prominently enough that I was like oh there's a good chance that Richard's the killer like cuz you know i've seen a movie before
1: the movie tries to have it both ways where evil is also saying, I'm going to kill to blaze on the phone. I'm going to kill someone close to you, but which, so it's like, Oh, maybe the husband's in danger. Kind of like, uh, you know, the dad and scream or something. Right. But the problem is they also show you, and while they don't, uh, they also show you that, uh, what someone who works with blaze, what Roz? Oh yeah. The, the, the woman at the
0: beginning. Yes.
1: Yeah, there is a kill at the beginning who clearly has a working relationship with Blaze. And so we already know that he killed someone close to her. So it doesn't sell the maybe the husband's going to get it to angle that well. Uh, But the the, the movie does try to play it that way in a couple points with with what's interesting
0: is that his motive seems to be kind of this fairly boilerplate misogynistic bullshit about women that wouldn't feel out of place on a men's rights subreddit. Like, he's got grievances about how Diane treats their son, and he's just got a lot of negative feelings about women in general. And it's it's odd. Well, first of all, it's weird that the whole buildup to this amounts to a really twisted family drama. Like, it's really about, you know, the this, this really weird... It's like it's the most bizarre domestic violence situation of all time because he's like, he frames it as... I'm this, you know, crazy killer. But really, he's just trying to get at his wife, who he hates for misogynistic reasons. But what's odd is that the motive felt kind of underwhelming to me because I was like, "Oh, it, it's that's 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 it. It's just that oh, he hates women. Okay." But at the same time, like that is a far more common motive for violence in the world. Than you know, believing you are getting revenge for your drowned son twenty years you know later, it's it's it is a much more you know that is something that happens in the world every day. So in some ways, it was like, well, this actually feels more germane because it's 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 like there are people who have these feelings out there.
1: Yeah, the the movie also it's splitting the difference because yes, it gives him two motivations everything that you just talked about but we also find out that he was a former patient at Crawford Sanitarium yes. which is where one of his kills takes place in a sexy time nurse thing very reminiscent of Halloween 2 but this would have been concurrent or slightly before
0: uh, it would have been before Halloween 2 would come out uh, like almost a year later in late 1981 this was uh around December 1980.
1: But uh, so it's it's almost like they didn't think that either one like, oh, if it's if it's just that he was an escaped from the sanitarium, but then was well enough for a while to have a, a wife and kid. But now he's gone crazy again that they wanted to give an extra boost. And it it's kind of like, no, it's they it, don't really connect the two strange. at all. And, you know, it's fine. But the, the the crazy gets played more because it really does feel like. Derek, the son, has inherited uh, some some tendencies from the dad. Derek's not a hundred percent totally sane uh, with some of what we see with him. I, I think pretty much in every scene Derek's in. No, he's doing he, some he, weird he, shit.
0: The, the boy yeah, just that's, ain't that's, right. Uh, Richard, the father, attempts to kill his wife with an elevator. Um, which is funny because most of the kills in this movie are very understated. It's, you know, he uses a switchblade. He kills the woman woman with the plastic bag. Um, You know, this is not the elaborate kills of Friday the 13th until you get to the end where he's got this this overly elaborate, wily coyote plan to send her up on an elevator and then come crashing back down. And, uh, of course, it doesn't work, and he gets into a shootout with the cops. Uh, where he retreats to the roof of the hotel and he puts on this mask that he has had. He only wore the mask once before when he first appeared in Diane's hotel room and you get the reveal that it's the husband. Uh, by the way, is the mask a clown or is it Richard Nixon? Or is it Richard Nixon as a clown? I can't tell. It could be any of those. Uh, I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. But then he's cornered by the police and what, and what genuinely took me by surprise, he takes a leap off the roof. Yeah, he falls from a very great
1: height. And this is where you then get every to, time uh, I have to I have to every time, Chris. Uh unlike unlike Halloween, when they look down.
0: He is there.
1: His body is still there, on the ground and dead. But that is not where this movie has its final twist to tell you that the horror might go on, which by the way, they never made the sequel, right?
0: No, you never you never got um New Year's Evil Day. New Year's Day evil. It would have been, you know. Um, you have the final tag where Diane is being driven away in the ambulance and revealed that her son Derek, now wearing his father's clown Richard Nixon mask, is behind the wheel. And just as the clock strikes midnight in Hawaii, is is has now he taken up his father's mantle? We never found out because they never made New Year's Day evil. Yeah, I might have gone for St. Evil's Day. Ooh. Um, oh, I like that. You know, give, give him a couple more weeks. Yeah. But, you know, I I, I like this movie, but again, it weirded me out. Like, there was something about the whole thing that's just sort of unsettling. It was a really interesting sort of snapshot of sort of punk-era L.A. Uh, and the music, oh, I should say, there's more music in this movie than almost any slasher movie I can think of, uh, and it's great. It is all, like, punk, new wave. Uh, you know, it's sort of vintage stuff, and it's great.
1: You will hear... Uh in the first 20 minutes of this movie, you're going to hear the theme song New Year's Evil about 50 times. Uh, but it's, it's awesome. I love it. No, I, I really wish they'd put it in even more. Uh, and then yeah. as the movie goes on, though, uh, you do get other songs all written for this movie. And Chris, I noticed something in the credits about said music in this movie. Please. Uh, and I, uh, true to form, uh, forgot to look this up.
0: <laughs>
1: but. All of the songs, not the not the score, but the songs that were written for this movie, right? Uh, some of them are copyright with uh, a Go Glow Music. Well, as a co copywriter, but right. every every song in this movie, Chris, is copyrighted by Man Your Y O R Music. <laughs> Is there a connection with your, the Hunter from the Future? Oh, Uh, oh my God. Oh my God. Because who puts your, like, what word is that? There, I just, (laughs) in my mind, the people who wrote this music emigrated to Italy (laughs) and started making movies over there. That's all. Rob,
0: I love that idea so much so it breaks my heart to... To disabuse you of the notion, I think it is Menaheim Golan and Yoram Globus. It is taken no, from Messieurs of Golan course. and Globus's first
1: names. This is why you need two heads there uh, that are better than one. I was so uh, focused on it having a Yor the hunter. Oh God, I wish it connection. did
0: because oh, uh, I know, the Yor Hunter was right from in the Future front of Theme my face. Song. I play it all the time. I My mean, wife <laughs> loves it. She says it. No, you know, it's 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 popular around the house. Uh, um, yeah, it, I like New Year's Evil. It just, uh, there was something about it that just kind of, like, I, I kind of just sat there unsettled for a bit. And you know, I was like, what's wrong? I'm like, yeah you know, New Year's Evil. Like, it kind well, of unsettled I, me. I, I, and I, I really like that quality because
1: this is not a paint-by-numbers slasher by any stretch of the imagination. No. It is... It's weird. It's a little wonky at times, but it's always entertaining. And most importantly, they say the title in dialogue. So it's got
0: a lot going for it. It does. Uh, I think that brings us to the end of today's episode, but please join us next week when we'll explore two slasher films, both featuring Halloween star Jamie Lee Curtis. Put on your tuxedo because it's prom night. And then afterwards, we will be getting on the terror train. Thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. You, if you like the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people that you have neutral feelings about, uh, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens. When Hollywood says, "Get me enough."